Hello everyone, welcome to this edition of the Talking Pharmacy podcast, where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the last seven days. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and join me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist, and Helena Beer, editor of Training Matters. Arthur is away. Later in the pod, we'll play an extract from our latest Pharmacist on the Frontline interview, where I talk to Gareth Hughes of Shepherd's Pharmacy in Wales. But let's start with Good Week, Bad Week. So, Good Week first. Rob, what have you got for us? Hi there, Richard. Um, I think it's been a a good week for the MHRA and West Midlands Police. Okay. So I know there's a a lot of um, concern around at the moment about... um, police activity in other areas but uh, for the second time this month uh, the focus has been on what the West Midlands Police have been up to with the MHRA and this time there's there's not too many details I think for obvious reasons but they've arrested five people suspected of selling prescription only and unlicensed medicines through illegally operating websites and um, it just you know is a reminder of the of the vigilance of the regulators backed up where required by law enforcement around um, around medicines. And it's just a reminder, I think, hopefully for the public uh, who read this story um, in their local paper, that medicines are not, as we would usually say, ordinary items of commerce. And that, um, okay, there's, there are, there's clearly criminality involved allegedly here, um, but buying medicines online from illegally operating websites can be extremely risky. You know, medicines can uh, do a lot of good, but they can also do a lot of harm. And uh, I think it's 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 useful to see not only that the authorities are vigilant and continuing to to look at things, but also um, it gives pharmacy as a as a sector the opportunity to to highlight what happens when the normal routes of supply are not used. Uh, just a quick shout out for the way the Birmingham Mail co- um, covered this story, which was uh, with a rather arresting picture. Did you see what I did there? A rather arresting picture of um, of a police raid in action uh, with somebody smashing a door in. And underneath it just said, um, a stock image of a, of a police <laughs> raid, which I thought was a little bit cheap. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good one, Rob. We, we don't... Often, well, the MHRA's enforcement kind of role perhaps doesn't necessarily get the the attention that it deserves, as you say, Rob. It's a really important part part of what the MHRA does, and it's uh, it does send out a pretty strong message to the public, um, just as you say. All right, thanks for that, Rob. Let's go to Neil then. Who's had a good week for you, Neil? Yeah, afternoon, Richard. Um, I've gone for Steve Bryan, the former pharmacy minister. We all know very well. He we told the Commons about a week ago. Um, he opened up the debate on, on Hub and Spoke. And I, uh, whether you agree with what he said, and I'll, I'll just go over what he said in a minute, but whether you agree with it or not, I, good week for me, because at least he's opening up the debate and putting forward some pretty constructive arguments, I think, um, concerns about Hub and Spoke. Um, and, of course, not least because he's actually, uh, he actually urged Joe Churchill to um, you know, get, a, get a move on with this consultation on the intro, uh, introduction of legislation that will make Hub and Spoke a feature in pharmacy businesses in England. And he wants to know when that will be completed. I think we all want to know when that will be, compl- be completed. Uh, timetable would be nice on that one. But um, Mr. Bryan, you know, he, he aired a few um, very valid concerns about Hub and Spoke. 
um, not least the fact that uh, the, the, well, the fear that um, carbon smoke may affect this this face-to-face patient pharmacist uh, relationship that uh, the, the USP that the pharmacy has uh, will it will it affect it in that way you know in in, in Steve Bryan's were um, words we could end up with a bigger distance selling pharmacy market and a lack of patient contact which then puts opportunities for wider primary care contact out of reach now whether or not you agree with that I, I think Hub and Spoke, of course, is still on the table. It's uh, lots of arguments for and against them. I, I personally think that perhaps he might have a point there, um, unless, of course, Hub and Spoke ends up being a, a model that focuses just on repeat prescriptions. But even then, I still think there's a genuine concern around uh, face-to-face patient care and the impact that Hub and Spoke will have. Um, now, if, you know, from our point of view, from independence point of view, you know, I think the jury's still out. I think there seems to be a bit of a mixed... Uh, set of views. Some are, um, are quite keen on on on, on the model. Um, they 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 realise. Well, I mean, they're they're living through this day day by day. They need to find efficient uh, an efficient way of doing things. And a lot of pressure, and Hub and Spoke will alleviate that pressure on them. Um, but at the same time, it needs to be done right. Um, and I think quite a lot of independents, certainly a couple I spoke to recently, are very very sceptical about Hub and Spoke. The business model needs to be right for independents. Um, and of course, we had last year. Uh, there's been a lot of scepticism. Last year, we had Alex Norris, uh, the Shadow Minister for Health and Social Care, um, saying that he was concerned that using um, uh, that the medicines uh, and medical devices bill was being used to force through this this legislation without proper scrutiny. Um, so I think Mr. Bryan did bring up some serious, genuine concerns. Um, good for him. And I, th- I, I would, I think these these concerns need to be aired um, in the industry. Where, where are we? The NPA. I mean, they, of course, they're the they claim to be the body for independence. They're the ones who, the voice of the independent sector. Well, you know, they've had a grave concerns about um, whether or not the model is safer or more cost effective. Uh, in fact, they've been very strongly against it in in the past. I think it was three or four years ago they they described that Hub and Spoke as a dangerous idea, um, saying that Hub and Spoke between different companies is fraught with difficulties for independence. Um, and of course. As time has progressed, I think concerns over the technology seems, seems to have seems to seems to have lessened. Technology has improved, and um, I get the impression, like independence, like you know, as I said, some independents are, are, are coming around to the idea. So I, I would I would say that you know, yes, full credit to Steve Bryan. I, I think it was, it was a, a, a very good debate in the Commons, um, and at the end of the day, um, you know, looking at it positively, looking at it constructively, if Hub and Spoke can can help independents. Um, you know, focus on clinical services. Uh, you know, we're talking about flu vaccines, but obviously COVID vaccines in, in years to come. And obviously, dare I say, the CPCS. Um, I think Hub and Spoke can't be a bad thing. But, I, but full credit to Steve Bryan for, for raising these issues and, and, and voicing some valid concerns. So does Steve Bryan have a point then? Um, Rob, what do you think? Uh, yeah, Neil, whether you agree or not. No, I don't agree. So I was going to pick this as a bad week because I think, uh, first of all, Hub and Spoke is already here. It is a reality. Um, And secondly, I think that um, Steve Bryan is quite right to raise concerns about about bigger distance selling pharmacies and a lack of patient contact. But is he talking about Hub and Spoke there? Because Hub and Spoke is where a central... Um, point does does the assembly of, of a prescription and the spoke is the one that 
sort it out for the patient. So, I mean, yes, the, that model is extremely dangerous. I completely agree. But that doesn't require hub and spoke. Central fill operation is not hub and spoke. Um, so hub and spoke is already here. Um, Rich and I were involved last night in a, in a very uh, interesting um, webcast on automated solutions for community pharmacies. And one of our panellists uh, has, from a small group, has a hub and spoke model for doing, for want of a better word, dosette trays for people in residential care and at home. Um, for a small group of a number of pharmacies where that, ho that whole thing is centralised, and has been centralised before automation um, in, a, in a particular place. That's a hub and spoke model. You can do it, you don't need, it doesn't need to be automated to have hub and spoke. And I just think that um, he's asking, he's raising a concern about one thing while, while talking about it as if it was another. I think actually Alex Norris in the same debate got it right, really. He said, I'm not against it or particularly in favour of it. It's a solution in search of a problem to solve. Um, and if you've got a problem to solve and being able to do something that currently only part of the market from benefit can benefit from, then um, why would you not want to be able to, to use the same, um, the same mechanism? You're only prevented from doing it, doing it because of the corporate environment in which you particularly operate. And it seems to me that that is unfair and is not a level playing field. And what's more, uh, and ultimately, if you don't like it, then don't do it. You don't, nobody's forcing people down this particular route. Um, but why should somebody who doesn't think there is a business model in this stop others who might find a business model? And I've said it before, nobody creates a business model for something that can't be done legally. Well, I guess other than criminals, and I've already talked about them. Um, but if you don't like it, don't do it. But don't stop somebody else from benefiting if they think they can f use the facilities and the law that's available to improve their business and offer a different form of service. Um, so I don't particularly agree. I think um, I'm with Alex Norris. Solution in search of a problem to solve. But if you've got a problem, then why prevent a certain part of the market from um, finding a solution for it? Neil, do you want to come back quickly there? Yeah, I, I, you actually just mentioned something there, Rob, that I was actually going to say, which was, yeah, the word is option, isn't it? I mean, why should this be foisted on 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 a pharmacist that don't want to do it? It should be optional. You should be able to choose whether you want to go down this road or not. It's, it's something that aids, progresses the business and fine. Um, but just to sort of, you know, look at what Brian actually said, um, what he actually said was, unless the pharmacy on the high street then acts as the spoke part by handing handing the prescription to the patient, we just end up with a bigger distance selling pharmacy market and a lack of patient contact. Um, and I think that's, as I said, yes, whether you agree or not, I think that, that is, has, been, has been a concern of pharmacists ever since this whole model was, was muted years ago. Um, and the other thing to say is, you know, if Hub and Spoke is here right now, then you have to question what's the point of a consultation? Well, the, the, it's, 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 if I'm an independent, I can't use a hub which is owned by somebody else. If I'm a manager of a, of a pharmacy in a small chain, I can, I can spend more time with patients because 
a hub pharmacy in the same small chain as me is doing is assembling some prescriptions that I am going to supply to my patients. I, you know, this is the thing. I, th this is often presented as a we're being forced down this route where when the way that the legal system works here generally is it facilitates people to be able to do things if they want to. And we've had this debate over and over and over again in pharmacy, you know, the right back to the to the the, the whole business about whether pharmacies should be allowed to put OTC medicines on open display. The law never said that they couldn't. Um, but there were there's a certain group of people in 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 um, in pharmacy who wanted to stop everybody from having the option to do that if they thought they could run a business that way. I remember being in a council meeting at the old RPSGB when this whole subject came up and um, somebody around the around the around the table said, if I think I could run a pharmacy with my small for my small community where I basically know everybody who comes through the door and I could put all the medicines that I've got on open shelving because I know everybody that's going to come into me. Why should the rest of you sitting around this table tell me I can't run my pharmacy that way? I think, you know, in legislation is often enabling and it doesn't mean people have to do it. It just means people have the option to think about doing it that way if they want. So I think your point is, Neil, it's that's how it should work. You know, if, if suddenly the, what the law said was that the government were going to set up these hubs and everybody would have to use them, then we might all have, have a worry about it. And rightly so. I think that the, the importance of the face-to-face -face contact between health professionals and patients is absolutely vital. Boy, have we had that exercised in 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 spades over the last 12 months you know vitally important we need to keep it yeah just to quickly add on yeah, and, and, and i would totally agree with that and i think that the, the as i said the key thing is oh, it should be optional yeah you're absolutely right rob it, it should be something that you should be able it shouldn't be forced on contractors or pharmacists should it well, okay well i guess uh I'm not sure it would be forced, but I think maybe Neil and Rob have reached some kind of agreement. We have reached accommodation, Richard. <laughs> An accommodation, which is good. Um, I suppose just to wrap this, that's a good debate, actually, Chaps. I'm thank you for that. I suppose just to to wrap this little uh, debate up within a debate, um, I suppose, I mean, it's the capacity issue, isn't it? We have to look within community pharmacy at, at doing what we can to increase capacity to create that headspace to provide the clinical services that Rob mentioned. You know, technology is part of that in whatever form. It could be heaven spoke, it could be central fill. So I think that it, it's incumbent on the sector to, to have the debate. I understand, I think that the, the concerns of independence with this is who with market control at the end of the day, you know, who, if this legislation uh, is passed, who is in charge of the hubs? And that's an issue. Um, However, like Rob also mentioned, you know, this, this, the uh, webcast that we did with Omnicell last night, another element to, to this debate is with the, the cost of these automated, in-house automated solutions coming down all the time. Does it make this whole hub and spoke debate a little bit of a white elephant? And actually you could see this um, hub and spoke stroke central fill solution working with a small group of independents as we did last night. It was part of our discussion. So... Yeah, there's lots of aspects to this, but we could have a whole pod on that and maybe maybe we will going forward because uh, it's a very live debate. Okay, let's change the subject. I think, Helena, who's had a good week for you? 
Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, my good week is the NHS getting its technological act together. Um, so after the test and trace app fiasco, I don't think anyone had much faith in the NHS's ability to develop anything sensible, useful or effective in the tech arena for COVID. But they do seem to have taken a step in the right direction. Um, they've turned to the humble text message, uh, keeping things simple. Um, they're targeting people with underlying conditions like cancer and diabetes, which is obviously the right way to go, as these are the people who are particularly vulnerable to the virus. Um, I do have a concern that a lot of the pe a lot of people in the the population are very cynical when it comes to that kind of communication, and I have to admit I'm sometimes one of them. Um, scam messages are increasingly common, and there'll be a good number of people who'll ignore it because they think it's a scam, especially as there's a link included. Um, NHS England has highlighted that the texts are sent through a secure government system and that they'll be shown as being sent from NHS vaccine. Um, so I think there's a role for pharmacy teams there to highlight the validity of the messages if any customers query it. Um, and if anyone gets the message and has doubts, then don't click on the link. Just go directly to the booking website, skirt around any potential issues. Um, they, they shouldn't let that be the reason that they don't get the vaccine. Um, but yes, I'm definitely saying good week for this because anything that encourages people to get the vaccine is fundamentally a good thing. Um, they've sent around two million text messages so far. I'm sure there'll be um, many more to come. Um, and even if that only results in a handful of people taking up the invitation, it's worth it. It's cost effective. It's not time consuming. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great, great idea. Um, I do think that upping the marketing of this in other ways is equally important, though. I don't think I'm seeing as many adverts on TV or billboards as I used to. So I do think they're missing a trick, um, especially as the NHS is about to open up the eligibility to the rest of the population over the next few months. Um, I don't think this is something that can be um, over advertised. That's a really good point, Helena. Um, yeah, I'm getting some quite a few texts now at my job appointment as well and that it's quite strange having texts coming through from the NHS like that but it's a good thing and the point you make about pharmacy teams um, helping patients uh, with the validity of these messages I think that's that's really important because I'm sure there is some element of confusion out there so yes if pharmacy teams can guide people through these through these text messages and, and give people confidence in them that's a really important role I think. All right. Thanks, Helena. Um, good week for me. Good week for Wales. Uh, again, Health Minister Vaughan Gethin uh, this week announced an extra £3.5 million of funding to help contractors in Wales meet their additional COVID costs. Now, this is on top of the £5.6 million allocated before Christmas. And Mr Gethin said this is in recognition of the vital role pharmacies play during the height of the pandemic in all our communities the length and breadth of Wales. Now, you know, this is great news for contractors in Wales. Obviously, it must stick in the throat of pharmacists in England. Um, Mr Gethin also had some encouraging news about rolling out COVID vaccinations from Welsh pharmacies. So all in all, uh, the green, green grass of home really is greener as far as pharmacy is concerned. In Wales, uh, good week for contractors in Wales. <laughs> So on Thursday morning, I sat down for a virtual chat with Gareth Hughes, superintendent pharmacist at the 31 Strong Shepherds Pharmacy Group in South Wales. 
Uh, we didn't only talk rugby, uh, but about what is a very exciting time for community pharmacy in Wales. And we're going to play a short extract from that interview now. So thanks very much, Gareth, for, for joining us on the pod. Um, let's start by uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and the Shepherds Pharmacy Group in South Wales. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Richard. Um, yeah, so my, my, my name is Gareth Hughes and I've um, been working for Shepherds for uh, 11 years now. So I started off as a as a branch manager and I sort of moved up to managing professional services and, and superintendent now. Um, there's sort of a 34 um, pharmacy group uh, across across South Wales, mostly located in um, so the South Wales Valley areas then. I'm just sort of very passionate about um, pharmacy and, and pharmacy services, really, and, and um, what we can offer in the future. Yes, and uh, Shepherds has done some tremendously kind of progressive work with, with, with service development. So it'll be good to, to talk about that later on in the, interview, in the interview. But what's it like, Gareth, to be a community pharmacist in Wales right now? I think it's a bit, bit of a, um, a mixture, really. So both of um, of chat challenges, especially around um, COVID and where we are now, but also I think it's a real sense of of, of optimism for for the future in Wales. Um, we've had the pharmacy delivering a healthy Wales document out out recently, which I I, I know you've read through, and um, there's, there's a lot of scope for how pharmacy can really improve and really add value um, to the NHS over the next next ten years, really. Yeah, I mean, the, certainly the impression from from the outside looking in is that the the Welsh government and, and the NHS and, and local NHS and, and pharmacy all seem to be on the same page in Wales. Uh, and you mentioned delivering healthier Wales there. Everyone seems to have signed up to that. Is is that the reality or on the ground? Yeah, I, I think you're completely correct in that. I mean, there's um, there's always sort of constant dialogue between um, Welsh government and, and community pharmacy Wales, as represents all all the contractors. I think we also have some really forward-thinking uh, local health boards as well. Um, and I think we've just seen in the last sort of week or so, sort of um, Welsh government recognise um, community pharmacy with the additional funding, where we had um, I think it was five point six million at the turn of the year, and they've added another three and a half million in. Um, and also the, the the recognition for um, everyone across um, health and social care having having this five hundred pounds sort of COVID related um, thank you payment really so so yeah I think everyone is is on the, the same page and like we, we said about the pharmacy delivering healthy ways I think that sort of government and health board and and RPS and um, all all sectors of ph- pharmacy really so everyone seems to be on on the same page like I said that's sort of given a lot of hope. Um, for, for the future for pharmacy, really. You mentioned the COVID crisis there in the delivery service. What's it been like for you at Shepherds this past 12 months? I think, yeah, a year. It's strange, isn't it? I think on, on the one hand, it seemed to have sort of gone by in a blink of an eye. And on the other hand, COVID seems like it's always been with us, isn't it? It's, yeah. uh, so it's, it's very strange. I mean, the, the, the first wave um, was very, very challenging. That no one knew um, quite what, what was happening. So day to day and just the, the amount of extra work. But as, as I mentioned, really, the, the way teams pulled together um, and really, really worked hard for, for, for their communities was um, was exceptional, really. I think that the November, December, January wave in, in South Wales, I think was more, probably more challenging because it seemed to be in, in our communities a lot more. So each each pharmacy had a lot of sort of patients um, 
hospitalised. We, we at one point I think we were running about one fifth of our, our staff off, so that was really challenging. But I think where where we are now um, is just sort of seeing those first um, beginnings of light of that new sort of dawn. Um, especially we've you know, the, the vaccination service has been going very very well in Wales, and I think probably all our staff have had the second vaccination now that that have been vaccinated. So. So yeah, I think we're sort of moving on from from the worst part of it, hopefully, and sort of trying to build towards that that future. Let's talk about the future, really, for community pharmacy in Wales. What do you see as the opportunities, but but also the challenges? So yeah, in terms of opportunities, I think um, I think we're looking to move from a um, a supply based model more to a a service based um, model in Wales. So really increasing the clinical capability of um, pharmacy and ph- pharmacy teams and really realizing um, the value adding potential that community pharmacy has um, for the NHS. Um, the last few years, we, we have had so several new services. We have the common ailment service, um, which, which is available for 27 um, minor clinical conditions. We had the sore throat test and treat service, um, where there's the, the um, ability to um, check with a, a rapid antigen test whether um, they have a, a strep A infection and, and, and prescribe penicillin from that if, if needed. Um, and uh, we're moving into the independent prescribing services. And so that entire package is trying to make community pharmacy the first port of call for, for managing acute conditions uh, in Wales. But with with the challenges then comes from trying to get that balance right of, of supply versus services. Um, and I think COVID highlighted that the importance of supply. So just looking at can we improve our ways of working, um, increasing our workforce development to, to release that capacity. Um, and then you know, allow us to have the robust services model going forward then. My thanks there to Gareth Hughes from Shepherd's Pharmacy. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. The full interview can be heard as part of our In Conversation with podcast series, and that will be available to download next week. I thought we got a very good flavour there from Gareth of the many positive aspects of community pharmacy practice in Wales. And I wrote about this earlier this week, the contrast between the situation in Wales, where everyone seems to be on the same page and there's a really progressive vision and an approach to service development. Well, you contrast that with the rather grim state of affairs in England. That contrast has never been more marked. Right, so let's bring the mood right down after that. Uh, who's had a bad week? I think we're going to talk vaccines here. Uh, Neil, let's start with you then. Well, I think it's been a bad week for 13 countries across the EU, Richard. Um, and yeah. these 13 countries, including France, Germany, Spain and Italy, um, they've postponed rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine because of concerns over clotting. Um, now, I think this has done quite a lot of damage to the concerted efforts to try and get more people to take up the vaccine, particularly people in BAME communities, um, which is really not a good thing. Um, yes, now you know there has been there have been uh, reactions to the to the vaccine. Fifteen deep vein thrombosis incidents and twenty two pulmonary embolism incidents across the EU and UK. That's out of seventeen million people who have had uh, the, the vaccine. Um, it's a tiny, tiny proportion. Now I'm not. Trying to downplay the, you know, the the, the significance of an adverse reaction has to be looked at. But I mean, come on, you know, it, it's it, it's utterly ridiculous to postpone. I, I I think that in postponing the rollout of the vaccine, you, 
those countries are doing more damage and putting more lives at risk than actually you know, administering the vaccine. Um, there's no causal evidence that the, the vaccines cause blood clotting. Um, the WHO have said that, the World Health Organization have said that, um, and they just simply shouldn't be pulled in the rollout. I think it's irresponsible of these countries. Um, and as far as uh, Germany and France are concerned, particularly those two countries, um, they've particularly blundered before on, on the AstraZeneca vaccine. We all remember the Macron's, uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, infamous uh, a statement that our, the AstraZeneca vaccine was ineffective in over 65s. Utter rubbish. Um, it's utter rubbish. And it's just a thought uh, uh, for those countries that are postponing the, the rollout of the vaccine. 575,000 people in the EU have died from coronavirus. Italy's on the grip, in the, in the grip of a, of a third wave, and France is, is pretty much on the, on the brink of a third wave of this virus. So it's a hugely damaging um, uh, uh, hugely damaging to, to, to the collective attempt to get people to to to, to take the vaccine, and, and and really shame on on these countries. Yeah, and and it does have a a knock on effect, doesn't it, in in confidence in this country? I mean, I think I've read reports that you know a lot of people are now ringing up to or trying to find out about what vaccine they're going to receive in this country, and if it's a uh, Oxford AstraZeneca and they're saying no, thank you. And I think I read some of the one in ten kind of um, appointments for the people who are having this type of conversation. That's clearly not where you want to be, uh, Helena. What did you make of all of this? Yeah, I think the the bad reputation that that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is is getting is just yeah, frankly ridiculous. I think other countries panicking and seemingly jumping to conclusions about cause and effect just. I think they just need to to pause and look at things properly. Those statistics that Neil referred to of 37 cases in 17 million doses, I think, prove that the odds are definitely in favour of the vaccine. The benefits far outweigh the risk. Um, and I, the, the MHRA has put out a formal response to, to these developments, reiterating the fact that there's nothing to suggest that the vaccine is the cause. Um, and they've highlighted that the chance of a blood clot after vaccination is very low and seems to be in line with what you'd expect to happen anyway. They're not an uncommon occurrence in the population. Um, and yeah, I think Neil's right. Responses like these from across Europe will will only be fueling fire in terms of vaccine hesitancy. Um, so it's important to get the message out there, again, that it's it's safe and it's effective. Um, some experts, I think, from Italy have called the suspension of, of the rollout political, which is, is just ridiculous. The, the health of a nation is much more important than political grudges. Um, and, yeah, they're just holding up their vaccination rollout for very little, if any, gain. But there you go. Um, I think it is a big risk for all COVID vaccinations, though, to be honest. Everyone's so sensitive about it that any tiny thing in the few days after a dose could be misconstrued as a side effect I think because of all the social distancing the hygiene measures that we've got in place everyday minor illnesses have become less of an issue this year the last reports I read about flu for example showed zero cases in 2021 so if you're ill less frequently when you do feel a bit off it you might be a bit hypersensitive um, with blood clots and anything outside of the usual sore arm and mild flu-like symptoms, it could just be coincidence. And I think that's what the MHRA is trying to highlight. Not everything is connected to the vaccine. Yeah, thanks, Helena. And, and 
thank you for highlighting the MHRA message there. Um, I, ju I just don't understand why individual countries in Europe aren't following their own regulator. I thought it was all in it together in Europe over the vaccines. Um, Rob, what, what are your observations about this, well, this mess, really? I was just going to point out that uh, our, our very good old friend, Dr. Anthony Cox of the University of Birmingham, Yes. has written a, a very neat piece about the precautionary principle and the AstraZeneca vaccine issues um, in on the website, theconversation.com. Uh, you can get that through Anthony's Twitter feed. Um, so the, there's lots of thoughtful, thoughtful stuff around uh, about, you know, why this is a crazy decision. I, you know, it seems to me to be political, but I suppose vaccines, you know, can be political, can't they? You know, there's... There's a debate going on at the moment in the US about whether the former president is getting enough credit for the vaccine program in the US. Um, he apparently had the vaccine uh, two months ago before he left the White House, but hasn't really told anybody about it um, because politically, I guess that doesn't necessarily fit with with everything else that he's been doing and saying over the last four years. So it, yeah, it's unfortunate when politics it intervenes. But nice one, Anthony, for that for that really nice piece which I enjoyed reading. Yeah, I enjoyed reading it too. Anthony was all over the news, wasn't he, this week? Uh, but speaking, you know, a great deal of sense about the precautionary principle. Um, Neil, do you want to uh, chip in here just around this this conversation? Also? Yeah, I, I just sort of want to make the point also that um, as well as, uh, I think you mentioned it, Richard, people are kind of almost waiting for the, for the, the so-called Rolls-Royce of, of the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, which, you know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily agree with, but uh, people are waiting for the Pfizer vaccine and, uh, and you know, in the kind of false belief that that may be more effective than, than the AstraZeneca one. But what the danger you really have here now is that because of what these countries are doing, the danger is, is that people won't want to take any vaccine. They won't want to take any COVID vaccine. And, and I think that's the, that's the kind of real damage that these countries are doing to the, not only to the reputation of, of the AstraZeneca vaccine, but I think to the, to, the, to the entire effort to get people to take the COVID vaccine, period. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And of course, you know, and, and if that is the case, how do we ever globally get out of this problem? You know, it'll, the, the, it'll just circulate around the world and waves will develop and it will mutate and, and you know, vaccination just not taken up at a high enough level. Well, you know, that is a pretty, that's like a doomsday scenario that you're outlining, outlining there. But you're right, you know, this this could knock confidence in in, in all COVID vaccinations and indeed vaccinations in general. And, and that's just not where we want to be. Um, today's Thursday, tomorrow's Friday. I've got my jab on, I don't care what they stick in, they can stick one in each, in each arm as far as I can concern. Uh, I just want the jab and I'll be happy to have it. <laughs> So we just have time for a quick any other business. Uh, who's got something for us? Helena. Um, so as a lot of our listeners will know, the Recognition of Excellence Awards won by Training Matters um, are open for entries at the minute. The deadline is currently Tuesday, the 23rd of March, so next week. Um, however, we're getting so many incredible entries through and they just keep on coming that we've decided to extend the deadline until the 1st of June. Um, so usually we hold the event in June, but this year we're holding out until September in the hope that some form of live awards ceremony will be able to take place. Um, so we've got a bit more time to offer pharmacy teams to get their entries in. Um, I'd encourage any pharmacists, managers, anyone listening to um, nominate their staff after this really difficult year. 
And there are more individuals and teams than ever who deserve recognition. And only by nominating them or encouraging them to enter themselves will they be in with a chance of that. Um, unfortunately, pharmacists aren't eligible themselves, only members of the support team. So do keep that in mind. Um, and remember that we have a brand new team category for pharmacy team of the year. So if it's been a collective effort, then that's the category for you. Um, there are plenty of individual categories for staff who've really impressed as well. Yeah, get your entries in, pharmacy team members. Um, Helen and I were talking about these, uh, the entries, weren't we, earlier this week? And there are some fantastic mm -hmm. ones coming in. This, this absolutely wonderful work being done. So, yeah, still time to enter, though, uh, and be considered for this prestigious award. Uh, Rob, what have you got? So... Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, March the 18th, which is the day before World Sleep Day on Friday, March the 19th. So if you're listening to this while you're, I don't know, cutting the grass or having a week, uh, a little walk on a Saturday or Sunday, I hope you had a good a good sleep on, the, on Friday. Uh, but I was looking forward to a sleep station 24-hour sleep lecture, which was due to be given by... Dr. Neil Stanley, the sleep expert, who I think has featured in uh, the pages of several of our magazines over the years. Uh, nice guy to talk to, Neil. And then uh, just this morning, we got a, a very brief email saying that the 24-hour sleep lecture had been cancelled due to unforeseen circumstances, which is a bit of a shame, really. And I was sort of speculating about why that is, and I'm not going to... I mean, you can make your own jokes up, I think, uh, about this. Um, but yeah, that seemed like a particularly neat idea and uh, to, to draw attention to, you know, sleep, which is a very important human function. I don't think I get enough. I'm sure there are lots of people around who don't get enough sleep. Um, so I just I just thought that was an interesting shame that something that was going to be so novel uh, won't actually go ahead. And I hope that maybe when World Sleep Day rolls around next year, they're able to do it and I'll be looking out for it next year. Yeah, it sounds to me as if someone was uh, asleep on the job there, Rob. Um, Neil, moving quickly on, what have you seen? I just want to sort of mention um, our, our Prof Reg and Pre-Reg students, because obviously yesterday and today they're taking their the assessment, um, which of course has we had a lot of uh, coverage in recent uh, weeks and months. So um, my thoughts are with, I suppose all our thoughts are with, with them, really. And um, hope, um, I hope that we all hope the stresses and strains of the last few months, the unnecessary stresses and strains, haven't got to them too much so best of luck to, to hope the exam goes well for those guys taking that exam yeah nice one neil and, and yeah we'll all echo that you know the very best of luck to those sitting and who have sat the assessments um yeah kind of a, thoughts are with you really and hope you you all do okay um so that's great stuff thank you neil thank you everyone i think that just about wraps things up for another week um all episodes of the pod are available on the pharmacy magazine website and from all your usual download sites, uh, as I mentioned, there's the webcast from P3 Pharmacy on automation in pharmacy in associ association with Omnicell. And that is currently available on the P3 and Pharmacy Magazine websites uh, on demand. And as Helena said, entries still open for the recognition of excellence awards. So that's the housekeeping done from now from all of us. Thanks very much for listening. Come on, Wales.